From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. We have such an opportunity with technology to completely reinvent marketing and selling, to be much more customer focused, much more relevant. And then for ourselves, so much more efficient. I mean, there's so much waste in B2B marketing and selling. Hi everyone, it's Justin Schreiber. And today I'm really looking forward to chatting with Latney Conan, CMO of Sixth Sense. Landy's company is on a tear right now, and for good reason. Sixth Sense is one of the pioneers in the field of intent, marketing, and sales. They figured out a way to determine who's interested in engaging with your company, even before those people have explicitly raised their hand. It's not surprising that Latney found her way to Sixth Sense, because throughout her career, she's always been looking ahead to the new trends that will turn convention on its head. But Latney isn't just a dreamer. She's also got the grit to roll up her sleeves and bring those visions to life. On today's show, she talks about why dyslexia paved the road to her success and where she gained the confidence to go her own way. She also offers insights into what it takes to stretch people to achieve more without sacrificing fun. Let's get into the conversation. Latney, welcome to the podcast. Justin, so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I, I feel like the title is a little bit, I'm not sure I'm supposed to be here as a legend of marketer, but uh, happy to share whatever I've got. All the great, <laughs> all the great legends say the same thing. So you're in good company. Oh, it's big shoes, big <laughs> shoes. So when I was in second grade, um, I stopped wanting to go to school. And my parents were like, this is really weird. Why doesn't you want to go to school? And they met with the principal and the principal said that I was, um, uh, I had epilepsy and they were like, she doesn't have epilepsy. That's ridiculous. And it, and they were like, well, she can't learn. We can't teach her. And the teacher was just sitting me outside in the hall. Cause she like, didn't yeah. want to deal with me. Um, and so I didn't want to go to school anymore. And, you know, my parents never thought there was anything wrong with me. They just thought that there, I wasn't capitalizing on my potential. And, you know, back then people didn't have like, there wasn't a lot of learning disabilities and IEPs and like, like that wasn't a thing when I grew up. Right. Um, but my parents were like, yeah, they're, we're going to figure this out. And so they pulled me out of school and I just got a bunch of tests. Um, I did a bunch of therapy I remember there was this like really hard clay that I had to shape. They put me in swimming because it's good to like get stress out. And, um, and so that we did all these things. And then um, I went back to school, but I went to a public school and, um, and I was in the LD program and, you know, public schools typically have more resources for, um, for people who have dyslexia and learning disabilities. And when I, um, when I went to the new school, they said, well, what's your name? And my first name is actually Barclay. Barclay? Barclay, B-A-R-C-L-A-Y. That's my first uh -huh. name. My middle name is Latney. 
And I walked in and they said, you know, Barclay Beck. And I said, oh no, there is no Barclay Beck. I want to be called Latney. And that was like my first rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> I rebranded myself. Um, and, you know, I always knew, and, you know, my parents told me you're going to have to work harder than everyone else, but it doesn't matter. We still expect you to make straight A's. We still, still expect you to do great things. You're just going to have to work a little harder than everyone else. And that's what I did. And it took until like high school to like, you end up like overcoming actually a learning disability. Like you learn how to, how you study, you learn yourself. You have to be very Mm -hmm. Um, Mm self-aware. You know, you learn how you learn, you, you learn the things that are going to be easier for you and maybe not as, as good for you. Um, But so, so by the time I got to high school, it had basically reversed itself. Um, and I wasn't in the, the, the LD program anymore, but that taught me a lot, you know? And, and I think I still, what's so funny is that like, I I think what's made me successful in marketing is I, I'm the one with the crazy ideas. Like I put out big, bold stuff that no one thinks is possible. No one thinks that people can pull that off. No one th- like our rev tech thing. I'm like, we're going to, we're going to stream people from here. We're going to connect it to there. We're going to have a live concert. And I remember people were like, that's, that's literally impossible. I'm like, not for us. <laughs> Cause I'm just used to like outworking everyone. And so I don't care. I'm like, we can figure it out. Well, we can outwork everyone else. And that allows me to think much bigger. Cause I know we can do it. The, uh, that, that story about dyslexia hits home because I was, I actually had dyslexia too as a kid and I didn't, I didn't realize it until I got, um, out of college actually. But that idea that you just have to outwork everybody to, to stay in line with everybody is, is very true. I remember, I always say that my hardest academic years were K through second grade. Because that's when I was trying to learn how to read. That's when I was trying to learn basic math. And I remember sitting on the couch in first grade with my mom. And I would bring these books home. And they would be in manila envelopes. And you had to have your mom sign the book off when you read it. It was excruciating. And the books were just so boring. It was about a goat that ate somebody's ball. And they were written in like the 50s. And I had no interest in reading these books whatsoever. And it was just excruciatingly painful. But... I learned the discipline to sit through things that I didn't enjoy and just grind it out and finish it. And I got to tell you, that's a pretty valuable skill in life. Yeah. And I actually, nobody, nobody gave me the memo that I was dyslexic, which is why I became an English major in college and spent most of my time reading. And, you know, I noticed that people were tearing through these books in a day and I was spending a week on them. And I didn't really connect the dots that maybe you have a learning disability. I just like, yeah, I'm a slow reader. Um, But like you said, you learn how to compensate. You learn how to study. If you're self-aware, you just figure it out and you adapt. And in the process, you learn skills that actually become real assets to you. Yeah. And I think um, not just that, it's like you, um, like, I love that my parents were never like, oh, there's something wrong with you. So you're not like, so you're not going to do as much or you're not going to be as much. Yeah. And so I tell my team, I, I always tell the 
you know, the people that I hire, and I talk about this in the interview process, I say the biggest gift that my parents gave me was really high expectations. That was that I think that's a gift. And so I'm going to give that to you. And I am going to have high expectations of you. And I'm going to expect things that you don't know you can do, but I know you can do. And I see that you can do them. And sometimes it might, you're going to amaze yourself, but that's a gift. That's a, that's a great way to position. You're going to work your brains out. <laughs> in my organization. I love though, the positive, the positive orientation related to that, because you're right. We all have potential. We need to tap into it, but we need to be stretched in order to get there. How do you, when you're working with a person, how do you know where the line is between what they're capable of delivering and what is overreaching? And how do you walk up to that line, but not cross it? Well, I also don't think, again, because my parents got all over this and like, it wasn't like, oh, maybe you need a reading coach. They were like, we're going to get the full test and you're going to go to this. And I mean, if there was a possibility that could maybe help, they like threw it at me. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny, I, I've taken that problem solving, you know, mentality. And I talk about finding the red and I'm like, dude, if something is wrong, that's great. We can go fix it. You know? So it's like, it's okay to bring forward that maybe you're struggling. It's okay to bring forward that you need help. It's okay to bring forward that something's not working because the longer we go, just thinking that you're, you know, I mean, imagine if you had caught your learning disability when you were in second grade versus in college, right? Like it's, it is limiting and there are ways that you can, you know, resources and things. So, so to me, it's like, I'm not going to have high expectations and throw you off the ledge. I'm going to have high expectations and be right there. Like, what do you need? What do you need to do this? How can we help with this? Where are things going wrong? What's the coach that you need or this or that? And so I think that's an important thing about, you can't just have high expectations and like hang people out to dry, right? Yeah. It's, it's also, let's identify when, what, what's going to be a challenge to meet that and, and get the right people around you so that you can meet your potential and the potential that I see. But I also would say like another thing, I, I don't believe fundamentally people change that much everyone has a different capacity to change, but most people are not going to be able to like totally change. So I do always try to think about like for this person and for myself, I think about this too, like what is my unique ability? Like what can I do better than most folks and what gives me energy? And let's try to optimize for that. Like let's not try to like, you know, do something that is just, you don't like, doesn't give you a ton of energy and you're not better than the average bear at. And so sort of also like how we optimize for, for you and where you're going to shine, I think is an important just conversation to always be having. Do you find that there are generational differences in terms of the way people receive feedback and respond when you're pushing them, stretching them? And do you have to change up your approach depending on, you know, the, the brackets you're dealing with? Or are people people? The term feedback is like loaded, right? You think about like the shit sandwich where it's like, God, Justin, I love that blue shirt. <laughs> you know? But. But, right? And so, um, it, you know, in the South, we say bless their heart. 
You never insult or put anyone down. It's always bless their heart. <laughs> so um, I would say I always try to give feedback in the context of, again, trying to get to the expectation or people trying to unlock their potential or get us to the goal versus, you know, something that might be perceived as personal because people's personalities are not going to change. Right. So you sort of have to, to, to work on that. And I would say on the one hand, I'm kind of a blunt object. This is an interesting one. I, I haven't. So I think a couple things, I think one is I'm very blunt across the board and I'm blunt with myself. So I will come to a meeting and be like, I totally fucked this up today. (laughs) Like, I'm so mad at myself. I could have done so much better, blah, 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 blah. And I think that people aren't used to that at all, you know, especially from like, it's rare that, but I am like, so not afraid to be like, oh my God, I'm a disaster right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't catch this. This is on me, blah, 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 or and so to some degree, that that creates space for people to self-diagnose, which is yeah. way better. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, I would way, way better people self-diagnosed, hey, I'm overwhelmed. I can't manage all these balls. Like, da 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 Then me have to be like, seems like you're dropping a lot of balls. <laughs> right? So I think that's, like, part of my style. I think the other thing is, like, I believe in the shit sandwich, but I think you can't do it at once. Like, I think it's like a bank. Like if I have built you up and built you up and built you up and you know that I love you and you know that I think you're amazing. Then when I come to you and say, this one might not have been your best work. (laughs) You know what I mean? So you serve them the bread and then at a different moment, you serve them the the cold cut. Yeah. I don't try to do like the good, bad, good. Like to me, I should be giving them positive feedback 90% of the time so that when I do come with the 10, it doesn't like totally knock the wind out of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like a bank, you know, and, and any type of negative, like it does not, like, I know I get the wind knocked out of me when people say I screwed something up, you know? So that's sort of how I try to roll. I don't know if it always works out, but that's what I try. That's the philosophy. (laughs) So you talked about also the importance of really understanding what makes you unique, your, your, your place of genius. Take us back to your childhood, to a moment when you realized there was something that you were really exceptional at, maybe even more so than other kids. What, what was that moment and how did the light bulb go off for you? So it's interesting, as I just told you, my parents had me in swimming and I like was not good. <laughs> Like I was not very fast. I mean, I can do every stroke. I can swim beautifully, but I like was never like super fast or like won a bunch of trophies, but I just loved swimming and I love being in the water. I still do. Um, And then I started teaching people how to swim and I put up my little sign at the club and I said, you know, I'm going to teach swim lessons. And, and then, and I coached, but I coached the littles. I coached the people that were under six, the dolphins. (laughs) I freaking loved that job. That was my favorite job. Seeing someone who like won't even put their face in the water and is like terrified and has like 20 floaties on, <laughs> like doesn't want to get in to like 
diving off the block and doing a full length of freestyle is really freaking rewarding. I did that over and over and over and over again. I mean, I would go to the pool and like, I was like the Pied Piper. I have like all these kids. <laughs> a gaggle of geese surrounding yes, you. Yes, you taught me how to swim. You taught me how to swim. You taught, so like that teaching element. And I think it comes back to like, the kid that didn't expect that they could do that. Like they never expected they'd be able to like do all these things. And it's just fun to watch. I don't know. It was a very rewarding job. It was also quite lucrative because of the way I charged. Aha, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. there was a method behind the madness. I love it. Two takeaways, Latney as a child, great instructor, great money maker. <laughs> a dangerous combination. Yeah. You know, anyway. my, my daughter was really into swimming. And I wouldn't say she was the most competitive, the fastest, but she loved to swim just like you. I remember one day at practice, the instructor said, or the coach said, all right, I want you to do 250 meters of freestyle. And my daughter jumps into the pool and she swam down to the bottom of the pool and then she burst out of the water and spread her arms out and then dove back in. And the coach stops her. He's like, he's like, wait, wait a second, what are you doing? And she said, you told me to do freestyle. So... I chose the style of a dolphin. (laughs) And what's funny about that is she is just her own person and she's got an imagination like no other. And uh, again, you know, as a kid that comes out and then they all grow up and you see those same characteristics come through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So you started off your career at Arthur Anderson, I believe. How'd you land at Arthur Anderson and, and what kinds of experiences set you up for your next step? So I realized in college that I needed to make money. And at that time, if you were an accountant, you got a signing bonus. So I was like, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Because I need to get a signing bonus. I need to pay off my college debts. I need to make money. You don't strike me as an accountant, just kind of a a gut instinct here. No, it's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually did great. I mean, I was like, I did awesome in comm school and I was actually fine as, but I, I, it was not my unique ability because it was miserable. You didn't love it. You didn't love it. No, because I remember, um, I remember like one of the first trainings and the first jobs that they put me on was called a Sally and it's same as last year. And a Sally is an audit where you come in and you do the same thing you did last year and you just check the same stuff you did last year. And literally you have this red pencil and you just check. Is that the same as that? Is that the same as that? And it was like, I'm like, wait. So they literally pay us all this money to come in and do the exact same thing we did last year. And, and they're like, yeah, this is like 80% of our business is Sally's. Isn't this great? You know? And I'm like, this is so boring. I'm going to die. So I realized that we had this Ariba uh, partnership and it was related to it accounting because it was procurement but it was software, it was tech, it was out in Silicon Valley. And I was like, I want to be out. And I, and so what I did was rather than take the accounting training, I took all the Ariba training at St. Charles. I used all my credits for that. And then I called the partner who ran the practice. And I'm like, I have more training than anybody on your team. And I've never been less than 110% chargeable, like put me in coach. And she moved me to her team. And And that was like the first, Ariba was like, I would say my launching point into really doing stuff, right? I was a consultant. I got to make things, I love to make things up. 
I just do. Right. I love the stuff that's like, like my first project, they were like, we're not, the software works. We think (laughs) no one's figured out how to use it and like how it would be valuable. Good luck. (laughs) And I like figured it out and I put this program together and we ended up saving all these companies millions of dollars. And like, you know, I just, I like creating something from nothing. And I think that's what I'm good at. I'm not good at the last 10%. I have to surround myself, but I can get zero to 90, but the last 10, that's, that's where I need like partners in crime. Yeah. So you're not, you're not a Sally kind of person. You're you're the person that sets it up and then somebody else takes care of the Sally. Well, what's interesting too, is you, I believe went on to become an account executive at Ariba. Mm -hmm. So you understood this business inside and out. You'd been trained on it. You were doing the implementations associated with it. Then you become an account executive. What what was that like as an AE? Well, first I was terrible. So I had to get a sales coach, which was great. Um, So I learned a lot from my sales coach. And as a woman, I like really loved being in sales because while it's way better for women now, um, And I don't know if it's just being a woman, just being kind of an odd duck, like just being someone who marches to be, I've always marched to be to my own drum. I'm the first child. Like I've never cared what people thought of me. And the nice thing about being an AE is like, if you make your numbers, like nobody cares, like you can wear too much jewelry or you can not care about the golf game, or you can not know about sports and not want to wear you know, an ugly pantsuit and it doesn't matter. You can laugh too loud. You can, whatever, if you put your numbers up, people will just let you be you. And I loved that about being in sales. That's Latney Conant, CMO of Sixth Sense. When we come back, Latney talks about a moment early in her career when she needed to decide if she'd embrace conventional wisdom or forge her own trail. She made a tough call and never looked back. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Latney Conan, CMO of Sixth Sense. Early in her career, Latney decided to mix things up and inject some humor and energy into one of the most mundane parts of her job. When her boss caught wind of her exploits, he wasn't happy. Latney's response, speaks volumes about who she is as a person and why she's flown so high in her career. Let's get back to the conversation. You rattled off a couple of things pretty quickly there. My guess is that perhaps people had said some of those things about you in the past, and this was your opportunity. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. (laughs) Where did you get the confidence? I mean, it's one thing to say, if you hit your number, I can do whatever I want. And yet there's so many people that hit their number and feel like they've got to fit the cookie cutter mold. Where did you get the... Where did you get the confidence to to go your own way? I think you meet a couple great people in your life that influence you profoundly and like give you confidence. And I've had a couple great bosses like that. Thankfully, my husband is someone like that who, you know, and his parents, honestly, like my in-laws are the best people on earth and they've definitely made me so much more confident And you know, when someone isn't good for you, you know what I mean? And so I shut that off really fast. 
probably too fast, but I really surround myself with people that are encouraging and motivating and accepting and want to talk about ideas, not other people. Right. Like if you want to talk about an idea or we call it scheming, you want to scheme, (laughs) you want to run a business model idea by me. Great. You want to like talk bad about other people, like not interested, interested you know? So I think you just find those like-minded folks, but I actually have a good story about when I left Ariba (laughs) And I think what helped me when I became an AE at Ariba is I already had a lot of street cred because I was a really, really good consultant. So, you know, that helps you be you because people are like, she's a little crazy, but she actually knows what she's doing. You know what I mean? Um, But when I started at the new at at Aperio, um, I remember I I was working on a deal with an account and it was um, was Valentine's Day. And the account was based in Ohio and it's an HR team. And the meeting was kind of a slog. It's like a huge requirement gathering meeting that we needed for pricing, but it's a slog. It's like, how many different pay groups do you have? I mean, it was, it's like not a fun meeting, right? (laughs) And so I was like, we're going to take this meeting that usually is miserable and I'm going to make it fun. It's going to be like Valentine's theme. We're going to have prizes. It's going to be like the whole thing's going to be like Valentine's Day party, but we're going to get through this meeting and get what we need. And somebody flagged it <laughs> to somebody else. Like and in like a bad the way. head of the practice called me and was like, this is like not on brand. This is not like, I think you need to change it and just follow the script. And I was like, I remember I was in my bedroom and I was like, you know, packing and, and I'm like, okay, don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Like you, I want to cry so bad. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. And I'm like, um, give me a minute. And I like got myself together and I came back and I'm like, so respectfully, I totally disagree. I know this account. You've never met them. You know nothing about them. I've been working with them for months and my job is to know the customer better than anyone else at this company. And I know they're going to love it. And if they don't, fine, you can let me go. But this is how we're going to roll. And, you know, if you want to call in and and listen and learn, great. If not, great. But it's my deal. It's my account. It's my customer. This is how we're going to roll. And um, he was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And the meeting, I mean, they loved it. They went, they loved it, right? I mean, it was the best meeting ever. And I just texted him as I like left the meeting and I go, how do you like my hearts now? (laughs) Aperio is an incredible run. You start off as an account executive and you end up being the CMO Mm -hmm. of the company. How in the world did you go from AE to CMO? In six years, which is pretty fast. Uh, I guess they were desperate. I don't know. Um, No, you, you, again, you have to have these people that see something in you that maybe you don't even see in yourself, you know? And I knew I could be a sales leader. I wanted to be a sales leader. Like I I felt like being a sales leader was that same job as being a swim coach, right? Like, you know, getting to coach and teach and like, I, I just felt like that was my destiny was to be a sales leader. And so that was the path I was on. And um, 
And I, you know, I begged to take over Central, got to take over Central. I begged for the AVP role. I got the AVP role for a hot minute. And then we reorged and we needed someone to run marketing. And I did have a lot of opinions about marketing. And, um, And I also had kind of, you know, I think that people can feel too like typecast, like this, especially at a high growth company, at a high growth company, whatever your job title is, like, it doesn't matter. Like, just look around, look at the stuff that needs to get done that's important and like start doing it. Right. And so we were a high growth company and I looked around and we didn't have a field marketing team. So I'm like, I'm going to start a field marketing team in central and it's fine if they support, you know, everybody, we need field marketing. So I like had the field marketing team in central, but we had people that supported every region. Right. I'm like, we can't just chase Salesforce channel. We need to have some demand gen. I'm going to have an outbound team. So I started an outbound team and I'm like, I'll put them in Indianapolis. They can support everyone once again. So I had like the field marketing team and like the SDRs already. And so I think they were just sort of like, you know, would you mind um, doing this? And, and of course, you know, delusions of grandeur. I was like, cool. Do I get to be the CMO? And our, our CEO was like, no fucking way. Like you have no chance. You will never be our CMO. Like you have no experience, no gravitas. Like we want someone who our investors tell us about, who has the pedigree. Like I kept hearing that you don't have the pedigree. I want a pedigree. I was like, all right. So like we kept interviewing these losers who had the pedigree, but didn't know shit from Shinola, like didn't understand our business, like you know, running small time budgets. I'm like, I already run a budget like three times, you know, never done international. I'm like, we just rolled out like 14 markets in Europe. Like, (laughs) what does this schmo have that I don't, you know? But I sort of like let it roll. And then finally our other founders, our the the other co-founders went to the CEO and they said, we're not interviewing any more CMOs. We have our CMO. Like, what are we doing? Awesome. That's actually how I got to be a CMO. I was running product. I'd been in sales for a while and I was running product too. And we were interviewing all these people for the CMO spot. And um, my boss kept sending them over to me. And I kept saying, no, this person isn't right for this. And then finally, my boss goes, I'm tired of interviewing people. You just do it. I think more out of desperation than like (laughs) the right guy. They were desperate. There was nobody better. And then, you know, I did it and I did a good job. And the, and and it wasn't like he was like, oh, I made such a good decision. It was just like, okay, that problem solved. Let's move on to the next one. Yeah, Mark, you're not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. So tell us about Sixth Sense. You guys are on a tear right now. What are you doing that is so unique and timely for the marketplace? So the thing about Sixth Sense for me personally is I'm in love with the problem that we solve. And I've always said, and, and I felt this way about Ariba, and I felt this way about Aperio too. Like, to me, this is a cause, not a job. Like, I don't want a job. I want a cause. And, you know, when, when I looked around, especially three years ago, when I first started at Six Sense, and when I looked around and saw like ABM and, and even the definition of ABM and like what people were calling ABM and that, you know, 99% of B2B marketing was still basically the marketing automation HubSpot inbound play, 
which I think doesn't work that well, A, and B, creates like just a horrible, horrible prospect experience. We have such an opportunity with technology to completely reinvent um, marketing and selling to be much more customer focused, much more relevant, much. And then for ourselves, so much more efficient. I mean, there's so much waste in B2B marketing and selling because uh, we cast, you know, a, a, a big net. We don't have great insights. And so I just saw this huge opportunity with what Sixth Sense is doing to like kind of build a new future. And that's the kind of stuff I like to do. So that's what we've been doing. Um, you know, one customer, one CRO, one CMO, one head of demand gen at a time is selling change. And I talk about that a lot. Like we, we're not selling technology. Yes, I believe we have the best technology available um, and should be the foundation of a modern rev, rev tech stack. I believe that. That's why I'm here. Um, but just because you have technology doesn't mean anything. It's also like helping people change their philosophy and change their process and their mindset and their measurement. And so it's pretty cool to be at a company that's at the forefront of that. The technology being a catalyst for change, but also just the way we sell, the way we support and the way we market is all about helping get people to the other side of that. Um, and it's worthwhile, you know, I mean, we just did a study of, uh, 400 some quarters of data. And we see that, you know, when people follow the approach, they use our technology and they follow the approach, they have two times bigger deal sizes, two times. That's like significant, that's boardroom level stuff. 20% better cycle times, 20% better win rates. Like this is your sales velocity formula. Like this is what allows you to efficiently grow revenue. Um, so anyway, that's some of the things we're doing. <laughs> For those that aren't really familiar with the space, you guys are doing awesome work. Basically, in, in a nutshell, what you do is you identify individuals with high intent to explore and purchase your products. And you're able to do that by aggregating lots of different signals, such as what sites are they visiting? Where are they visiting on the site? And you aggregate all this up into a score that basically says, reach out to Latney. She's really interested we can tell because of her behavior. And to your point, the difference is I'm now reaching out to you at a moment when you really care, as opposed to interrupting you when maybe you're focused on something else. And that's what's driving these success metrics like better conversion rates, faster sales cycle times, et cetera. What I love about what you guys are doing, there, there is definitely an arc to the evolution of go-to-market. You know, you go back 50 years and it was door-to-door -door sellers and advertisements on TV. And then people got this idea that you can automate things. So then we started inundating people with email. And, and then people got smart and said, well, let's not interrupt people. Let's actually figure out when they want to talk to us and then approach them. And that's really where we are today. And you guys are kind of at the, the forefront of that whole movement. Yeah, it's bringing behavioral data. Yeah. We talk a lot about this notion of a dark funnel. And I think you guys fit into the notion of a dark funnel too. This is, you know, you, you've got your data in CRM and you've got your data maybe in your marketing automation platform, but that is such a small slice of like what's really going on and mm -hmm. really the journey. 
And, and we call that the dark funnel. And so you need to be able to see what research are people doing outside of your website. You need to know what research people are doing on your website. A lot of marketers do not know who is anonymously on their website. And 98% of your spend and my spend is going to drive anonymous web engagement. So be really good to know who's there, right? Um, so bringing that together, um, bringing together, you know, then more static data, like profiles type of data, and then being able to say, like you said, what does the journey really look like? Mm -hmm. Where is this mm -hmm. account really in their journey? And then how do we go and do something about it? You know, I think some of the earlier, um, solutions that came out and us included that were more like predictive analytics and like just a score, it's kind of like, cool what do I do with that? Right. <laughs> so it's, it's being able to show the journey and then saying, this is where they are. So we're going to go and trigger an ad. This yeah. is where they are. So this is the right time for sales to make a phone call. And this is what sales should talk about. And these are the contacts that you should go and purchase because these are the most relevant people on the buying team. So it's being able to bring all the data and the execution channels together for this new new foundation for sales and marketing and customer success teams to work in. Well, we love what you do. We use you internally, both for our sales, for our marketing teams. Um, and as you mentioned, there is a really nice synergy. We can see who's manifesting intent on the outside. We can also see through people AI data who we're actually engaging. Mm -hmm. And the magic moment is where there's high intent, but our teams aren't engaging with that person. We have a little trigger that says, go talk to those people. Right. Um, and uh, and it's exciting what you can do today, just the signal that you get if you're able to capture it and use the right technology to make it happen. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. All right. So you, you've been at Sixth Sense for a few years now. What's your playbook when you land in terms of putting the strategy together and shaping the marketing organization into a well-oiled machine that's really having impact? Well, I hope I don't have to have another new playbook. I want to stay here a while. <laughs> I'm quite happy. <laughs> um, I will say, or I will share uh, I just had a call today. So I talk to CMOs all the time. And the reality is 27 to 30% of CMOs are probably in transition. This is some data that we just uh, we did last year with, with a group of CMOs. So it's a very volatile gig, which is hard. And, and so I talked to a lot of CMOs about the transition and helping them think through that. And so... Um, I was talking to someone about our 90-day plan. And I said, let me let me think through what mine was. And I use a framework called V2 Mom. It's a strategic planning tool. And V2 is vision values. And then mom is kind of like your OKRs. It's like what you're going to go and do. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, when I came into Sixth Sense, my values were people, pace, and perspective. Um, so, you know, it was, you know, build the engine. That was my vision. I just want to build this, build a highly functioning engine. And I said, people pace perspective. And, you know, I talked about, I have to, I can't, I'm not going to do it alone. I got to get the right people on board. The pace thing is, 
you know, at some point in marketing, like it's grading poetry, like we just got to move. We have to, we have to keep a certain pace. Um, and, and I'm going to drive a very fast pace. That's how I am. Um, and then perspective was you hired me to bring my experience and perspective, but I will also take into account your perspective and the history and things like that. Cause I think the number one thing you can make a mistake of when you come in new is over rotating on whatever you were doing before sucked. I know what to do. Right. Or kind of just picking up what they were doing because they hired you for a reason because not everything they're doing is working. Yeah. Right. So you have to have this, this notion of external, my experience perspective, but also take the time to understand the perspective of how they got there. And so those are my values. And then, you know, from a methods perspective and like what I think CMOs have to go and drive. And I just did a presentation on this because I actually changed my title from chief marketing officer to chief market officer. Because ultimately we want to, and Christine Heckard taught me this, we want to own the seat at the table that understands the market. And if you get the market right, everything else comes into play. So I think about defining my job as market, brand, and brand is ultimately experience. And that's what I wrote the book about. And revenue. Nowhere in there is a lead or an MQL. That is a demand signal. But when you ask me and my team what our job is and how we we think about things, it's market, you know, ICP, TAM, analysts, win-loss, um, working with product on where things are going. It's experience because brand to me is your experience. Like, and it's funny, we we were on a call today and they're like, well, this is what they're saying on their website. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I say on my website. Doesn't matter what our competitors say on their website. It's what people say about them. Mm. It's the experience they have with them. So, and there's millions of little experiences happening all the time. If you think about it, it's scary. And so, how do you make sure all those are positive and you're orchestrating the experience that you want people to have about you and, and be able to go out and say about you? And then once you build those blocks, is the revenue piece. And it and more is not the answer. As a salesperson, I can only work so many deals. So my job as a chief market officer is to make sure that I'm optimizing that sales channel. You know, just like direct mail, I wouldn't send every single buddy who showed intent a bottle of champagne. That would be crazy expensive. I shouldn't show everybody who shows intent to sale. They're, they are more expensive than the champagne, right? And so thinking about it in that lens, that's how I think about that revenue cycle is how do I get things as ready to go as possible to feed into that sales um, sales channel or yep. our engine? Yep. I've heard you talk about day one. What does that mean? So, so we... <laughs> Yeah, so we got this. Uh, we we had our round of funding, and one of the investors is is a company called D One, and and his and the the main investor's name is Dan, and so I thought, did he like name his company D One? <laughs> like, it's kind of cheesemo, but anyway. <laughs> but I did, you know. Obviously, we learned more, and it's a great investment company. But he named it D One because of the Jeff Bezos 
paper that every day working in a high growth company should feel like that first day that you found it, like that level of excitement and passion and commitment to what you're doing. And so they led our last round. And so one of the things that we talked about and believe in now is like for every single one of our employees, making sure it feels like D1, day one, like, here we go. So it's kind of a cool way to think about your job and passion for your work. How do you actually achieve that? You're, you're four, you're five, you're six years into a job. How do you make it feel like day one? Well, I think that you don't, you don't let a lot of grass grow under your feet. Um, you know, so you have to keep moving and, and doing things and, and making moves. Um, I do something called the fun factor where I believe that eight out of 10 working days, you should be having fun. And so I, I always try to like check in with my team, like what's your fun factor? And that can tell you a lot, right? If they're like, it's a five, I'm burned out. Like I, I'm, you know, then it's like, okay, we need to hire. We need to figure this out. We need to reprioritize. Um, or maybe they're just not doing something that energizes them. I don't know. But, um, but my goal is always for everyone to be at an eight. And, and I, and I talk about that, like, you, you should have fun doing this, right? This should feel energizing and like we're doing big, important, cool things. Um, so that's one. Two is I really, I really pr- try to prioritize like a few really big things versus a lot of little things. And so I will forego a weekly webinar or something like that to do something huge and exciting. And it just again, back to the fun factor, like people want to feel like they're executing something that hasn't been done before, especially I think marketers, like you want that shock, awe, beauty. Um, that's why we do this. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, try to have things that, that give us that feeling of, um, doing meaningful work is, is kind of the second, big thing that I believe in. So fun factor that, and then, um, last, and I just gave, I just talked about this. So this is a little new, honestly, for, for me, um, you know, a was PE backed and it was definitely not the same level of growth that we have here. Um, it was a lot more getting, you know, getting more out of less, right. Which is a different mindset than the one that I'm in right now. Um, and, you know, I, I talked to the team and I said, our legacy right now is who we hire. Like we are not going to be able to do what we need to do looking around this room. I love you guys, but like we've got to grow. And so now we start every call, every one of my calls and our C- this is starting with our CEO. And this is what he started doing is like, tell me about your hiring. Tell me about your hiring. Because that's that's the future of where we're going. So that's that's become way more of a priority. Like, who are you most excited about? Why? And that that gives everyone fresh legs, you know. And it's it's amazing what one or two people on a team can do to keep it energized. Yeah, yeah. Well, Annie, it's been an awesome conversation. I want to end with the question I always end with: If you look back over your life, your career, what is that one thing? that's made the biggest difference? Marrying the right person, 100%. Mic drop. (laughs) 
sort of comes you got you've got i think it goes back to the conversation you you were you had about you got to have somebody in your corner that knows you that truly cares about you it's going to shoot straight but also always is looking after your best interests yeah you can always walk with your head high then mm-hmm. well thank you so much it's been great thank you this was fun i love the format very different i love it Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.